We continue in Exodus, and we're now officially in the second half of Exodus, chapter 19. And if you recall, we've said that the first 18 chapters deal with God's redemption of his people. And then the second half, beginning in chapter 19, deal with God's covenant relationship with his people. And so our overall title for this series has been Redeemed for Relationship, that God has redeemed you by the blood of Christ, not just to rescue you from your sin, but to bring you close to himself in relationship with him, to know him, to be known by him. And so in the second part, we're talking about what a covenant relationship looks like, and God sets the terms for it. And so we're going to think through God's law together, and we're going to think through uh, God's worship together. So right now we're thinking through God's law, and that's the focus of chapter 19, verse 1, through chapter 24, and yet it's imperative for us to know the context and appreciate the context within which God gives us his law. He never sets up some legal arrangement with us. It's a covenant relationship with us. And so it's crucial for us to see that in 19.1 through 24.18, God ratifies his covenant, which is built on his covenant with Abraham. You remember in Exodus 2, verse 24, the reason God comes to visit Israel in bondage in Egypt, he sees their groaning and he cares for them in their suffering, And the reason for that is that they are his people because he made a covenant with Abraham 400 years earlier. And it says, I remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know you and I'm coming for you. And that's why he comes. And so in Exodus 19 through 24, he's renewing that covenant because a lot of years have gone by. Because a family, Abraham's family, is now becoming a nation of people And in this crucial juncture in their history, when he forms them officially into a nation, he renews his covenant with them. And he's also just building on those prior stages of his covenant of grace, advancing a bit further in these chapters. And within that context, he gives the law. So covenant relationship is preeminent, not law. Law serves that. Well, chapter 19 is crucial for our perspective on the law, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And this, these verses, these few verses, summarize what a covenant relationship with God looks like. Um, one commentator says, this passage is the heart of the Old Testament, verses 1 to 6, the whole heart right there. And he goes on to say, everything in the Old Testament, indeed everything else in human history, can be explained in terms of the covenant relationship described in these verses. So it's just a few verses, but they're huge. They give you gospel basics, uh, the rudiments, the fundamentals of how grace operates in your life, what covenant status and covenant living is and how it plays out in your life. It's like that story you know well of the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, July 1961. Um, The team is assembled the first day of training camp, 
And the previous season, they'd done really well. They made it to the NFL uh, championship. However, they lost the game late in the fourth quarter. And so all through the offseason, the Green Bay Packers, their team and their coach have just been stewing over that heartbreaking loss. And so now they're back together, ready to get going, eager to advance their game, refine those details that'll get them over the hump to win this year. And yet Vince Lombardi walks in that locker room, looks at his players recently assembled, holds up a pigskin and makes those famous words, gentlemen, this is a football. And at that point, he establishes a tradition. And that tradition is that we're going back at the beginning of every season. We're going back to scratch. And I'm going to teach you the fundamentals all over again as if you never knew them. So that we become the team that's best at the tasks everyone else in the league takes for granted. And they never lost a playoff game again. And so in a similar way, but of course much more important, in a similar way, this verse gives Israel this crucial stage in their history the basic dynamic of covenant living. And it's the same for you. And this is the pattern of the covenant, your identity in your life, that you have to keep going back to as if it were going back to scratch because it's so necessary for you. It's like Moses stands before you and says, people of God, this is grace. This is what grace looks like in your life. So let's read these verses, 19, 1, 2, 6. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this good word, it's relevant to you today and it endures forever. Thanks be to God. So it's the third new moon after Israel departed from Egypt, meaning they've been journeying to the promised land for three and a half months. It's not long, but it certainly feels like a long time to Israel, journeying through the wilderness. So they finally arrived at Mount Sinai. And if you recall, in chapter 3, when God called Moses to go to Egypt, he gave him a sign to reassure him, and it was an interesting sign. This is what he says in verse 12 of chapter 3. And this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me on this mountain. All right, now that's an interesting sign. It's interesting on the one hand because notice 
what God's goal is that they will serve him on this very mountain. This is the mountain where God called Moses. And it shows us that God redeems us for relationship, to worship him, to serve him, to know him, to be known by him. He meets with them and wants to meet with his people. It's also interesting because it's a future sign. Do you see that? If I were heading to Egypt, like Moses, I'd kind of want a sign I could see and touch right then that God had indeed sent me. But this sign is future. It's like after you've done it all, you're gonna get here and then you're gonna remember and be reassured that yeah, I sent you. Like after you've done all the work. Uh, But you know what? Sometimes God's signs work that way. Uh, Jesus said, and there's this verse I think, just think it's great. Jesus is trying to convince people that he is who he says he is. And in John 7, 17, he says these words, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. All right, how important is that for us? If you wanna know the Bible is true, the gospel is real, put it into practice. And Jesus says, you'll be confirmed in your faith. It's similar here. So we don't sit back and say, I need God to do something before I believe. We say, I'm gonna believe the gospel and let the Holy Spirit confirm me in that as I do so. But think even more about this future sign. Okay, so where is Israel? They're in the south of the Sinai Peninsula in a desert. God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. Egypt was better than where they are. Furthermore, where they are is no closer to the promised land. It's actually further away from the promised land. So they're thinking, I don't know if I signed up for this. I signed up for the promised land, I get this. So it's a real good time for Moses to be reassured but that's how grace works. You entered a relationship with God and he promised you salvation in life and think about the twists and turns your life has taken that maybe you've looked up and said, wait a second, I'm not feeling closer to this blessed life. I'm feeling further away. Um, My prior life was a little easier than what I'm dealing with and you wonder, is it all real? And God's telling you and reassuring you, I have you right where I want you because it's in that place of need that I determine to meet with you. And what you most need is me. You need me. And in this place of need that you could never have imagined that you were gonna be in, that's where I want to meet with you. Really, that's confirmed in the gospel itself. Jesus came to set up a kingdom. But how did Jesus set up that kingdom? He had to go into the worst desert imaginable through his cross and judgment to establish his kingdom. It's just gospel living. How does grace operate? God takes us to strange places and through difficult times, but he's giving us himself, which is what we need. Well, then we get to the heart of this passage. The heart is verses four to six. And and young people, 
I want you to get this so deep in your heart when you're young. And old people, we need to refresh and refresh because our minds get certain ways we think uh, God relates to us. Um, Alec Motier, a biblical scholar, has this wonderful statement about verses four to six. Just listen to this. The sequence of verses four to six is extremely important for our understanding of the Old Testament and indeed of the whole Bible and of our place as the covenant people within it. The sequence is the saving acts of the Lord, verse four. Our response of obedience, verse five. And the blessings which obedience brings, verse 5b and 6a, and nothing must ever be allowed to upset that order. And that's scholarly talk, for I'm really passionate about what I'm telling you. Nothing shall upset that order. It's redemption, then your response of obedience, and God's blessing. It's not your obedience, God's redemption, and God's blessing. The order is important. You see, here we see a past, a present, and a future. It's what God's already done, what you and I are called to do, and what God promises to do. A past, a present, and a future. And that's how he operates in your life too. So let's think it through. What God has done, verse four. What has God done? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I've done that. That's why you're here. It's all past tense. God summarizes his whole redeeming work I've already done this for you. I did this for you and you did nothing. You see, they were helpless slaves under this brutal, even lethal bondage. Um, God unloaded, like God visited them in their groaning and unloaded spiritual warfare on Pharaoh, those nine plagues to wake him up the 10th plague to judge him, the Red Sea where God rescued them. I mean, that visual aid of the Red Sea is crucial to have stamped in our own minds and hearts. You were there. Israel trapped like a sitting duck with the Red Sea behind them, the desert in front of them, and this fierce and elite military machine of the Egyptians bearing down on them, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And Moses looks at him and says, stand still, do nothing. See God's salvation, see him fight for you. And God opens the pathway in the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. Then God closes the pathway over the Egyptians and destroys them. And it's a visual aid of sovereign grace in your life. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I did that. 
And then we ask, we step back and say, why did you do that? Was there something in them? Was there something in them that elicited that special favor? But we know that's not the case. I mean, before Moses gets to Egypt, God says, you talk to Pharaoh and you say, you let my firstborn son go. Why are they God's firstborn son? Did they distance themselves from the others in some way? And we know that's not the case. Joshua 24 says God called Abraham when he was worshiping idols by the Euphrates River. I mean, he's just one of the pagan, unbelieving people in the world that God changed because he chose him. Deuteronomy 7 says, I chose you not because you were great or or richer or more gifted than the other nations. I chose you, I set my love on you because I loved you. It's, it's, it's not an answer to us, except it is the most beautiful answer. I just loved you. That's why I chose you. And because God chose Abraham and his family, he then enters into this covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, so key for us. God takes Abraham and he says, look, I'm gonna... Let your descendants be slaves in a foreign land, but then I'm going to redeem them. Abraham believes. He believes the gospel. Then God says, take some animals, cut them up, put them on either side of each other. This was a covenant ceremony. But then the interesting thing is God puts Abraham to sleep. And in a dream, what passes between the animals is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, kind of similar to the cloud of glory and the column of fire that's been leading Israel in the wilderness. And only the smoking pot and the flaming torch pass between the animals. Now in ordinary covenants, both parties would pass through saying, if I don't keep this covenant that I've promised to keep, I swear to my own destruction, may I become like these animals if I don't follow through. But again, Adam, uh, Abraham is passive and asleep. Only God passes through. And God's saying, I am going to redeem you and I swear it to my own destruction if I don't unilaterally, all by myself, unconditionally, redeem your people. Redeem my people. And ultimately that points to Jesus who did have to pass between the animals in order to redeem us by his blood at the cross. By choice and by covenant, God did it, all of it. But not only that, not only that, but then just think about how God cared for them once he rescued them through the Red Sea. It's this attentive, constant, loving care described as, I I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The, the sense is, like you didn't even have to walk really. I carried you to this place. You ever felt that way? I don't know how I got here, but God had to have carried me here. They would have died of dehydration and hunger, but God provided manna and water and quail. Um, the figure of the eagle, a, a, a fierce uh, predator, God's saying, look, I fought. I fought Pharaoh for you and rescued you from Egypt and you couldn't have done it. 
God saying to us, I fought hell, death, and sin for you at the cross of Christ. Uh, The eagle is so attentive to her eaglets, her young. And so at the moment when it's time that they begin to fly, she rustles the nest, makes it a little uncomfortable for them, rouses them up, kind of pushes them, gets them going. But even at that point, her eyes are upon them and they struggle to fly and sometimes they even plummet. But she's there spreading her wings underneath them, even letting them alight on her back to rest or to take them to a perch to regroup. It's that kind of care. I did it all. This made such an impression upon Moses that at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32, he, he teaches Israel a song to deepen their love for God. And this is what he says in his song. The Lord found Israel in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord guided them. I mean, it's this all-encompassing care, hovering over them to feed them, then flying under them to catch them when they fall. God's saying, I did it all for you. You didn't do anything, and I brought you to this place. And he says the same to us. I chose you in love. I made a covenant with you in Christ. Christ came and accomplished your redemption at the cross. He sent his spirit and applied it to you, giving you faith and repentance in order that you enter a gracious relationship with me. This is all I've done for you. It's all of me. That's what God's done in the past. We keep that first And then we move to the second. How are we to respond to that? How do covenant people respond to such mercy and such grace? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Our response, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. We're charged to obey God's voice and keep his covenant. This introduces the Ten Commandments. Um, A lot of ink has been spilt over this. Uh, There are those that suggest that God is offering to them some sort of legal arrangement, some sort of covenant of works. If you obey me, I'll save you. But that couldn't be further from the truth. So much attention has already been given to the fact that God has redeemed them. They are in a relationship by grace. So it can't be truth. It is a conditional sentence if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, but these aren't conditions for salvation. You receive a gift. God's already brought them to himself into a covenant relationship by grace alone, through faith alone. The law serves this relationship. So again, what's God saying to Israel and to us in the covenant? We're saying this is what a covenant lifestyle looks like. We're in a relationship. It's like, it's like any friendship or any relationship. You seek to please the other person, to get to know what the other person likes and is like. What he's saying is that faith in our redeeming God will generate change. It just has to. He's saying this, to experience and to enjoy and to grow 
In our covenant relationship with God, we must obey God's voice and keep his covenant. To enjoy the blessing of salvation, we seek to know God. That's the perspective of the law. We're seeking to know God and be known by God. And as we do so, we enjoy and grow in his blessings. And yet we instinctively have a negative view of God's law, kind of a suspicion of God's law. Eric Alexander describes it this way. We, we view the law like the mother who called out to her husband, honey, go out and see what our Willie's doing and stop him. Like he's gotta be doing something wrong. Or we view the law as some, um, some hurdle or some mountain we got to accomplish in order for God to accept us. And we just can't seem to do it. We get frustrated. But once again, don't you see, you're inverting the order. Redemption came by grace. You are learning and training to know God and to follow after his ways in a secure covenantal relationship with him. You see, God's law is an aspect of his grace. It's for your holiness, which is for your happiness. It's the way you were designed to live. Alexander says it this way again, law and grace are not irreconcilable opposites. It is the principle of salvation by works and the principle of salvation by grace which are irreconcilable opposites. So how important is the order here? You are not seeking to obey God's law in order to get accepted with God. He's done it all for you with great emphasis. And it's so important that we know this for our motivation. Two people could be seeking to obey the law. One views the law as his entryway to get accepted with God and therefore he obeys it by fear and insecurity. The other seeks to obey the law, but he's doing, doing so knowing that God has redeemed him by the blood of the lamb and he's secure in his relationship with God and he's overwhelmed by the grace of God and he seeks to know God's mind and obey his will out of love and gratitude and joy, knowing that if he fails, the blood of Christ is sufficient for his sins. I love how Sinclair Ferguson relates this to a marriage covenant. Uh, it's not a marriage covenant in this contract with conditions to be fulfilled. It's implications of a covenant graciously entered into. So he says, no couple stands up here and says, if you love me in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, then I'll do the same for you. No couple says that. Each party makes an unconditional promise to the other, which is so much more powerful. It's out of this unconditional self-giving of one partner that the implications of the covenant are so massive for the others. Like, who would love me like that? I can't help but love you like that. It's not I will if you will, but rather she, he has, therefore I must. I can't do otherwise. So if God loves me like this, then I want to get to know him, obey him, follow him, please him. Surely it's for my good. And that's the sense here in this passage, for God's already done it all to provide that relationship. Well, what will God do? What will God do? Verse 5b through 6a in this order. God's past, our present, God's future. 
As Israel and we obey God's voice and keep his covenant, what can we expect God to do in our covenant life? The fundamentals of the gospel. What's God going to do? Well, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, Now, the interesting thing is God's already done this. Really, all these blessings they're already experiencing. God's already made them this by bringing them to Sinai. So what's he really promising them? What he's promising is that you're going to grow deeper and deeper into these blessings. You're going to experience them in a more, in a fuller and fuller way. You're going to realize them more abundantly in your life as you seek to keep my covenant and obey my voice. You're going to grow in these blessings that I've graciously given you. You're going to grow in knowing that you're a treasured possession. You're going to grow in knowing that you're a kingdom of priests. You're going to grow in knowing you're a holy nation. I'm going to, I'm going to deepen your experience of my grace in your life. You're going to cherish me more, and I'm going to show you my affection more. So therefore, people of God, as we trust and obey him, we enter more into our status as God's treasured possession and uh, among all peoples. And so ancient kings owed everything, owned everything, the whole land, everything in it. It was theirs. And yet within everything, they had a special, precious, priceless treasure that they cherished. They loved it. They went and looked at it, held it. It was theirs. It was their personal treasure. Remember, David talks like that when he gives us personal treasure to build the temple. Like, it's mine. It's mine. Out of all the nations, they all belong to God. He's not a tribal deity. He owns it all. But by his love and affection, he made you his prized possession. He delights in you. He delights in you. Yeah, you, you don't got it all together. Like you, 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 you fall way short so often. But you see, it never was on your performance. It's because of his love in the gospel. And do you know today that he delights in you? You're his treasured possession. Does that fill your heart as you step out into the world this week with all the stresses and pressures you're going to encounter, all the temptations to pursue other things to make me feel good? or to make me feel worthwhile. Do you know that God has put worth on you already in the gospel? And as we trust and obey him, we realize more fully our status as a kingdom of priests. How much do you think about that during the week, that I, I'm, a, I'm part of a kingdom of priests? Um, As we trust and obey, we go more fully into our dignity of our royal standing as citizens of God's kingdom. Um, Citizens of the kingdom. uh, Co-heirs with Christ. That kind of dignity and authority is given you in Christ. And we go further into the intimacy of our full access to God as priests. You see, a king had a select group, an elite group of priests that were his, that they had complete access to him. 
And in a similar way, you and I, in Christ, have full access to God. There's no barrier. Sometimes you feel like there's a barrier. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus daily intercedes for you. You have complete access, not on your record, on Jesus' record. This speaks of how intimate your relationship with him is and as a priest, how fundamentally important your life is for the world. Priests help people who don't get know God to get to know God. And so you're living and you're Engagement in your callings, all of that is so crucial to help the world know Jesus. And finally, as we trust and obey him, we experience more profoundly our status as a holy nation. And um, God's people are a nation, a distinct people in the world. And the word used for nation is the word, word ordinarily used for pagan nations. And so God's telling you that like, You were just an unbelieving idolater. But God rescued you from that and all the consequences of that by his grace. Just like Paul, there's a trustworthy statement. I'm the chief of sinners. But for that reason, God showed his love for me that I might declare it to others, essentially. God made you a holy people by his grace, set you apart to him in the gospel to where you're distinct in the world with different values, different loves. You care about, we care about what he thinks about you in the gospel more than what other people think about you. Um, It's a different way of living that we have. And so God's saying, as you trust and obey me, as you keep my covenant and learn to obey my voice, I'm gonna deepen these blessings I've already given you in the gospel. You're gonna know how precious you are. You're gonna know your your function and your purpose as a kingdom of priests, and you're gonna celebrate the fact that you're a holy nation in this world set apart to me. This is the order of the gospel. May God sink it deeper and deeper into our minds and hearts. Amen, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this beautiful passage, and we do pray by your grace, your spirit, that you would make us live out of it more and more, and we celebrate how good you are to us. Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.